Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Quick note before we begin, the Finding Genius Foundation, as part of the Finding Genius Podcast, has recently completed a book about understanding viruses. So the creation of this book was to interview 100 virologists, ask them a lot of deep, difficult questions, take the most difficult questions, and then re-interview the top 25 or so and ask them the hardest questions I could think of. And we compiled that all into a book. So you'll see question and four or five experts' answers. Question, four or five experts' answers. There's about 30 questions in the book. I think it's a great read for the layperson and for the researcher. talks about a lot of speculation in the world of viruses, such as are they alive or not, and why is it important? Uh, Why do viruses go latent or hidden or ineffective or sit in a person or an animal or another creature for weeks, months, years? and then suddenly become virulent and affect that person. Uh, so there's a lot of really provocative questions in the book. It's now on Amazon. So if you go to Amazon and type in Finding Genius, you'll see the book on viruses. It's also on Kindle. The Audible version is in production and should be ready in approximately a month. But if you want to go and order it now, uh, you can do so again by going to Amazon or Kindle or go, go to findinggeniusfoundation.org and go to Publications. There's an opportunity as well to get the transcripts of all the interviews and to hear the original interviews themselves. If we had put them all together, the book would be about a thousand pages, but we condensed them down to make it juicy and concise and tight and very interesting. So I hope you'll check out the book. Uh, we're now working on one about cancer, but this is going to be our goal is uh, three times a year to come out with these masterclass books that I think will inspire new scientific research. And I hope you'll check it out. Thank you. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast, now part of the uh, nonprofit Finding Genius Foundation. I have uh, Stephen Robert Shukin. He's a PhD student in chemistry at Stanford, and uh, he's looking at how to restore aging brains that are suffering from uh, Alzheimer's or possibly other dementia-related conditions. So, Stephen, thanks for coming. It's an honor. Thanks for inviting me, Rich. Yeah, so tell me, why are you interested in uh, aging brains and cognition and things like that or restoring it? You know, I've been interested in aging for a super long time now. Way back in 2013, I had never even heard of anyone studying aging, but Google had announced that it was going to start Calico, which is now a somewhat well-known venture. And at the time, the journalist who made this article put Calico as this extreme crazy moonshot, the most crazy thing Google had ever done, uh, try to extend the human lifespan. And uh, I, I followed along with the news and followed along over the years. And this has really matured into something people take really seriously. And before I even go beyond that, I'll say that we talk more these days about expending, extending the health span rather than the lifespan, because we're trying to make people live healthier and younger for longer rather than just uh, have them live in an elderly state for a longer time. Yeah. I mean, what's the point of living to 100 if, you know, the last 20 or 30 years of your life, you're out of it and you're just sitting there, you know, drooling on yourself and not doing anything. Exactly. And so what happened to me is as I read about this stuff over the years and I and I sort of took some detours into because my background's in synthetic organic chemistry. So I wasn't studying aging for a long time. I was a hardcore chemist, but I kept following the field as sort of an outside fan. 
And the more I thought about it and read about it, people started to appreciate that organs age in different ways at a cellular and molecular level, different aging processes happen differently in different organs. And the failures of those organs that happen as you age, again, come from different aging processes. And I just became fascinated by the brain, thought it was one of the hardest problems to tackle. There are medications we have for lungs and hearts and livers and kidneys that are failing. But for a failing aging brain, it's a really a much tougher problem. And I think a, a good one for a chemist. Well, all right. So what's the uh, focus of your research then? What are you looking at? A particular mechanism or molecule or what are you focusing on? I'm doing research in the Weiss-Corey lab at Stanford and the lab in general studies brain aging and Alzheimer's disease. And I use an analytical chemistry technique called mass spectrometry to study proteins. So for those who don't know, DNA gets turned into RNA in the cell, which gets turned into protein. And so the protein is the product of every gene in your genome. So there are about 20,000 20, genes in the genome and they all make proteins. And so I study how those proteins change as the brain ages. And that's actually much tougher to do than, than DNA or RNA. So this, this mass spectrometry technology that I use is still evolving. And so I, de- I sort of develop new methods and new ways of looking at data to better understand the brain aging process. So is what you're doing under the umbrella of proteomics? Yep, exactly. Mass spec proteomics. That's right. What is uh, transcriptomics versus proteomics then? Yeah. So like I said, DNA is turned into RNA and that, that RNA that happens inside the nucleus. And then the RNA is processed and shipped out of the nucleus into the rest of the cell. And that's where it's turned from RNA into protein. So transcriptomics is where you're looking at the RNA, that, that messenger in the middle, that messenger that goes from DNA to protein. And transcriptomics is a super powerful technology, but it's also clear that the number of RNA pieces for a given gene does not correlate always super well with the number of copies of the protein that comes out of that gene. And the protein is what's actually doing the heavy lifting. That's where the biology happens. So there's increasing uh, interest in moving from transcriptomics to proteomics. So RNA fragments are assembled, what, in ribosomes into proteins? Yep, exactly. That's called translation. Okay. So what, what kind of methods are you using? You mentioned mass spectroscopy, you know, to look at the proteins. What other methods are there that people use for proteomics? So what I use is a, a more advanced technique within mass spectrometry called a limited proteolysis mass spectrometry. What I really like about this is it, it gets you not only how many of each type of protein is in the sample, and I, and I look at um, cerebrospinal fluid, the fluid that the brain sits in, it not only tells you how many of each protein there is, but it also tells you information about the chemical structures of the proteins and how those structures are changing. And those can be super important for biology in general, but also aging and age-associated diseases. To answer your question about what other technologies people use, they can use these, you know, I don't have to get into the details too much, but there are what are called microarrays that have, it's, it's basically a plate with a bunch of different probes on it that you can add your sample to, and then you'll get a, a spot that lights up if your protein is there or if that protein is in your sample, and you can quantify that. And there are companies as well as labs that, that use that kind of technology, but you can't get that um, structural information, which I just talked about. You can't get that from a microarray. So what, uh, what are you noticing that changes? I mean, I guess, first of all, what's the landscape? How many different proteins in a given cell type that you look at are there to observe? With, thousands, millions? Yeah, with mass spec, you can get up to the thousands, the three, four, five, six, you know, somewhere between one and 10,000. 
with fluids like cerebrospinal fluid, it's much more difficult. So we're looking more at around 500 proteins. And then there's more filtering when you're looking at the, the structural changes, how many of those are you actually observing? But within the multiple hundreds we have, we've, we found some really interesting results. We found an immunological complex that is not even known to exist in the brain, but it's known to exist in the blood. And it's known, hasn't been studied very well, but it's known to have some relevance in obesity and in uh, autoimmune disease type phenotypes that can happen in obesity. And no one has ever seen it in the brain. And, and we have found that it, it goes strongly up in abundance with aging. And then we've also found a handful of other proteins that are known to change in chemical structure with Alzheimer's disease, or rather they have ligands that bind to them or cleavage products that arise from them that are known to change in Alzheimer's disease in the CSF. So we're seeing this sort of link between Alzheimer's disease and aging, which hasn't really been drawn before in the CSF as well. So some new stuff and then some old stuff that's almost equally exciting. So what do you think is the mechanism, you know, if you characterize which proteins are on the rise when someone's obese or as they're aging, what do you do with that information? Yeah. So we think a lot about the immune system in our lab. We think about how the immune system around your whole body is interacting with the brain. There are immune cells that that are circulating around in your bloodstream that enter the brain sometimes. And then there are immune cells that live in the brain, in particular, one cell type we've studied a lot called microglia, that as you age, they really change in their transcriptome. As we mentioned earlier, the genes that expressing turning from DNA into protein via that RNA molecule, and they really change how they look. And there are these things called lipid droplets that, that accumulate inside of them that seem to have a deleterious effect on their, on their function. And so the reason I'm interested in this is because some of the proteins I saw changing in abundance with aging in the CSF seem to be coming from microglia. And we know that they're relevant to brain aging and cognitive function, how that declines with age and Alzheimer's disease. So the immune system seems to be a, a really big part of it. And then there are other things about the extracellular matrix, the, the actual structure of the brain, how the sort of scaffolding that holds the cells together outside those cells in the brain seems to also be breaking down and transforming in certain ways. There are a lot of interesting separate but related phenotypes that our lab is looking at. Before we continue, I've been personally funding the Finding Genius podcast for four and a half years now, which has led to 2,700 plus interviews of clinicians researchers, scientists, CEOs, and other amazing people who are working to advance science and improve our lives and our world. Even though this podcast gets 100,000 plus downloads a month, we need your help to reach hundreds of thousands more worldwide. Please visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click on Support Us. We have three levels of membership from 10 to $49 a month, including perks such as the ability to see ahead in our interview calendar and ask questions of upcoming guests, transcripts of podcasts you're interested in, the ability to request specific topics or guests, and more. Visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click support us today. Now back to the show. Do you think that there's multiple things going on when someone's headed towards Alzheimer's, or is there a primary driver that seems to be, you know, have a stronger signal than, than other effects? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, going all the way back, for those who don't know, Alzheimer's disease is defined by these plaques, these nasty pieces of nothing uh, sitting in the brain tissue called amyloid. And it's called amyloid because it lights up with this dye that is supposed to bind to starch. So amyloid is from a word that means starch. Anyway, those, those plaques are made up of a, a protein that they called amyloid beta. And 
amyloid beta is a really interesting protein. It's actually a cleavage product of a protein. So there's a protein called amyloid preprotein that is cut into amyloid beta. And the proteins, the genes that are involved in that whole process. It's okay. No problem. The proteins that are involved in that process have mutations that are known to really, really change the risk of Alzheimer's disease. So people who get it when they're 50, that's very early. And those people tend to have mutations in the amyloid pathway. So that's really strong evidence that amyloid, which again is the, the, the pathological harm, hallmark that you see in your brains, has to do with causing the memory deficits and everything that we see. When it comes to the memory deficits, of course, it's about neurons dying and, and atrophying. And there are other protein, nasty aggregates of protein that are forming inside in uh, neurons called tau fibrils. But amyloid has a big has a big role to play. And what we've found is that when we try in the clinic, we as a field try in the clinic to target amyloid, it doesn't work as well as we'd hope. And there are a lot of reasons that might be the case. One of the possible explanations is that just as you say, there are multiple things happening. And, and this makes a lot of sense with aging that if there are sort of, you know, just like when your car, when you drive a car for too long, you know, maybe the, the most likely thing uh, to happen is that the timing belt breaks. But also it's very common for other things to happen at the same time. You know, your brakes start to wear out things that might result in the same ultimate effect. Your car won't go. Uh, I guess in the case of brakes, it'd be the opposite. But but a lot of things are happening at once. And that's sort of that's part of what makes studying aging so tough is that multiple different things are happening which is why we really like these omics techniques where you're looking at everything at the same time and you can draw connections between things. You can draw connections between how the extracellular matrix and, and microglia and uh, signaling, signaling molecules in the CSF, these things are actually, there's a, there's a complicated but interconnected system of things happening that we're just scratching the surface of now. Well, I had, I had heard from one researcher that amyloid may be like, a, like fibrosis, you know, um, an inappropriate healing of lesions or problems in the brain. Is, there, yeah. is the perspective that it's that, or it's just this pathological plaque that comes out of nowhere? And like, why does it? Yeah, so I just read an interesting review that, that I think is exactly what you're talking about, that the amyloid beta peptide itself has functions. It, it, there's a reason that the body makes it. And that's been sort of ignored the whole time. And, and there's actually a side effect that only happens in clinical trials where you're targeting amyloid beta. It's called, it's something like amyloid-related imaging abnormalities. That might actually be it. And, and so there's definitely something about hitting amyloid beta that's not good. And so the way I interpret it, again, it's all about the chemical structure. So the way I interpret that is when APP gets cleaved to make amyloid beta, that's a good thing. And amyloid beta does good things. And, and we have some hints now about what that might be. And then what, what, is it, what does it do? I, again, I, I, if you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You know, I, I can't say because I read the review and there, there, it, there are definitely effects on neuronal function, just the functions of neurons firing. That's the first thing I remember, but I didn't, I didn't read it recently enough or in deep enough detail. Sorry, I can't comment more. Okay. But when it misfolds, that's when you have problems. So when a protein is like, um, it's like a, a, I guess a knot. And when the knot is tied or sorry, it's, it's like a rope. And when you tie it into a knot, then it has a particular function. But unlike a normal piece of rope, it's always wiggling around. And so it can tie into the wrong kind of knot that doesn't have the same function. And that's super important. So with, with amyloid beta, it can get tied into a knot that's, uh, that's very pathological. And then a bunch of amyloid beta molecules will stick together. 
And there's tons of, of literature about the bad effects of that stuff on, uh, of that, of the aggregated state on neurons. So it seems like amyloid beta goes from a good and necessary thing in the brain when it's properly folded and when it's what we call monomeric, it's just floating around by, by itself, interacting with whatever it's supposed to interact with. And then when it misfolds and aggregates, then it goes bad. Well, I thought there's helper enzymes or helpers that, that assist proteins to fold properly. Yeah, so those are called uh, chaperones. And there's that's part of a whole network called proteostasis. So you got chaperones, which help things fold properly inside the cell. And then you have the proteasome, which helps degrade misfolded proteins. And then the lysosomes, which help degrade all sorts of bad stuff. The problem with APP and amyloid is that this is all happening outside the cell. You don't have chaperones outside the cell to facilitate that some stuff. It's kind of the wild west out there. And so you need cells like, and this brings it back to microglia, it's microglia's job to eat and remove the misfolded garbage outside outside the cells. And it seems like that function is also, so that's a process called autophagy. And that process seems to also be impaired with aging and with Alzheimer's disease. And and part of the reason I'm here on the show is because I was a co-author on a study that found that this molecule CD22 on microglial cells, if you inhibit that, then it helps them be better at phagocytosis, which is a part of the autophagy process. Also, these glia cells literally eat what? They eat plaques that have become uh, polymerized or what do they do? Yeah. So there's a few stages of the amyloid aggregation process. So there's what we call oligomers, which is when you just have a handful or a few dozen amyloid together. And microglia can definitely eat that. And then you have aggregates, which are bigger, and microglia can eat those too. But when it's a plaque, when it's really big, then it's too big for, for any one cell to eat. So the, the hope is to, to get it passed. Now, I, I do recall papers where they can actually see a reduction in, in patients in the, the signal that you're getting from amyloid in the brain, it's that might be from plaques. It might be this sort of dynamic process where if you kind of nibble at the edge of the plaque, then you can then you can decrease the size. But the most effective treatments I've seen so far target the oligomers, that earlier stage of aggregate. So, what, I mean, looking at the structure of uh, of amyloid beta, you know, it's good form and it's kind of mixed form, and then later plaque forms. You know, what's observed? What are the differences? And what can you tell from that? Well, I mean, that's exactly the problem is you can't really see inside a human patient all this detail. And that's what's so important about, you know, things like doing CSF proteomics is you you get better uh, biomarkers. So if we could, you know, take a sample of CSF and say, here's how much monomeric, oligomeric, aggregate and plaque you have in your brain, not just in the CSF, but in the brain, because we're either seeing it in the CSF or we're seeing other molecules in the CSF that correlate really well to that, then we would have a much better job at, at looking at how a patient's progressing. To answer your question a little more directly about what the functional differences are, you know, it's, there's, a, there's a lot of stuff. I mean, again, the, the beneficial effects of monomeric amyloid beta are just starting to be appreciated now. The oligomeric effects that, that I've seen are most popularly discussed are that they are uh, toxic to neurons. And then aggregates, they can just straight up disrupt cell membranes and kill cells. And then with the plaques, there's actually a, a paper that not a lot of people talk about where they simulated the amount of force that is uh, applied on the surrounding neurons when you have an amyloid 
plaque growing in the brain, in the brain. And just by sheer force, they can squeeze the neurons out of existence and make them die. So there's a lot of, there's a lot of bad stuff that can happen. And while all this is happening, the microglia are going crazy because they know something is wrong and they're starting to secrete their own inflammatory factors, which also it, they're sort of trimming the neurons to try to save the day. And that can actually hurt the neurons. So yeah, I think that answers your question. Yeah. I mean, it is pretty complicated. What about from autopsy? I mean, would that not, is the brain not in a condition where it preserves what actually is going on? Do you need you know, a live sample? No, yeah, definitely. I mean, a lot of work in our lab and in other labs is done on uh, fresh frozen brain tissue from patients who died of Alzheimer's disease and and died with healthy brains. And those are are really important studies. Again, it's hard it's hard to say where a patient is along the progression because it's sort of like it's sort of a an ouroboros, a snake eating its own tail kind of thing. Where you don't, if you look at a brain and say, "Wow, this is this is really bad," then you can't have known that before you looked at the brain. So you can't really like ascertain the meaning of it. I don't know if this is making any sense, but the point is, yeah, people are doing these studies and and trying to learn everything they can by correlating different uh, pathological hallmarks, you know, uh, after death. I would think it would be easy to see a brain that's very damaged. Okay. That brain's very damaged. You know, that makes sense. Yeah. But one in someone that appears to be healthy, right. You wouldn't know. So in, I guess yeah, so what they would a, need is a spectrum of, uh, of autopsies, you know, look at the brains yeah. of what seem to be healthy people and people that are obviously not look the difference. Well, this is the awkward part, which is, and I think a lot of Alzheimer's people who might be listening to this podcast would be thinking, why is he talking so much about amyloid? Because a lot of people think, well, we haven't succeeded to, to hit amyloid in the clinic. So it's time to move on and find other targets and focus more on microglia and other cell types and and that's, you know, I'm screening for new proteins in the cerebrospinal fluid that, that may have nothing to do with, with uh, amyloid. And another awkward thing is, let's say a person has no memory deficit, but they have tons of amyloid. And it's like this person, you know, if amyloid were causing Alzheimer's disease, this person surely should have it. Well, that happens, actually. There are a lot of people who die with Alzheimer's-like dementia who don't end up having plaques. And then there are people who die with plaques who never got dementia. So that's the question. Did that person die with a lot of plaques without dementia? Were they about to get it? And is that are those plaques still meaningful or are we actually on the wrong track? And that's why we're trying to back up and get a whole system-wide picture of what happens in brain aging and, and Alzheimer's. Well, if you assume you're on the wrong track, what, what would be the role? I mean, I don't know what would cause Alzheimer's since if these plaques don't always seem to cause it. I mean, well, I guess let's look at the plaques. Like literally what's happening with the plaque structure that's causing Alzheimer's, that's causing neuronal death. Is it hypoxia? Are they sequestering nutrients that would get to the neurons? Are they just stopping nerve impulses? Like what physically is happening? Yeah, I mean, I talked about this a little bit with physical force that's applied and membrane disruption and and, and sort of bad signaling that happens where the something about the something about the amyloid oligomer itself signals something negative to to neurons and to microglia that make the neurons either self-destruct or the microglia kill the neurons and there's other there's other stuff going on too where there are a study our lab came out with last year found that t cells which is another type of immune cell seem to be killing seem to be killing neurons in the brains of alzheimer's disease patients and we don't know what their T cells react to a specific molecule. They're they're It's called an antigen. They're, they're hunting to kill stuff that has this 
this thing. And this thing could be amyloid and that could be another, but we have no idea what it is. That could be another link. So there are a lot of possible, there are a lot of possible mechanisms and that's, you know, their experiments are all underway to figure that stuff out. I mean, what is your intuition telling you that is not known about amyloid that should be known? What well, as I said, think? it's very fashionable these days to forget about amyloid and to look for other to look for other targets. But to me, these familial Alzheimer's disease people, the people who get it at 50 and the mutations they have, it's just undeniable. You know, amyloid plays some plays some role. And, and there have been fierce debates in the literature about about this. And so my my private suspicion is that the reason that our drugs have failed is not because we're targeting the wrong target, uh, even though there, there may be some side effect issues with, and, and targeting the beta amyloid monomer, which I think is super important to avoid. But what I'm interested in is that these drugs, especially the antibodies that have been developed, don't cross the blood-brain barrier very well. So they'll cross the blood-brain barrier at you know maximum 2% efficiency, but usually less than 0.1%. And so the other 98 to 99.9% of the drug molecules you're putting into the bloodstream are doing other stuff. And there's a company, Denali, who's working on, they're working on using, using what we know about the blood-brain barrier to cross it, to transport biologic drugs across it. And there's some interesting work they're doing. And, and, and I think, to me personally, that's the most exciting area for opportunity is just being able to put a, blood into, a drug into the bloodstream and see it go into the brain and actually hit the target we're going for. So what's, uh, are there any hypotheses that you think you're going to get some traction on in the next year or so? Or is this going to be a very long haul because just not, not, not much is known? Well, a lot is happening even in the clinics now. So there are a lot of molecules on the surface of microglia that have become that have become therapeutic targets for Alzheimer's disease that companies are actively that companies are actively targeting and so so immunology is definitely you know paving a new path and it'll be interesting to see where those drugs go our lab well my pi the pi of my lab tony weiss Correa, was involved in a clinical trial for young blood plasma because our our lab was the lab that found that if you expose an old mouse to uh, the blood of a young mouse, then it rejuvenates the brain. So that, that, you know, plasma donations are obviously safe. And so they tried to look at and see if young plasma donations could help with Alzheimer's patients. And there was a, a beneficial trend, although there wasn't enough, there weren't enough participants in the study to get a statistically significant result, unfortunately. So there are some excited things. I, you know, I myself, uh, I've put together a couple of, of proposals to find new molecules and structures in the brain that are that are important for aging and Alzheimer's disease that would be totally unknown. You know, part of this is we just don't have the flashlights to even illuminate the evidence that we need to tie these pieces of the story together. And so that's what I'm really excited about. And, uh, and I've also written a proposal to try to find new routes across the blood-brain barrier. Denali has a transporter called transferrin receptor which works okay, but not great. Uh, when I said up to 2%, that's the, kind of, that's the kind of percentages they're looking at. So I'm really excited in the future to get involved in efforts that will find new and better transporters into the brain. So it's all happening in the next couple of years, though, for the short term. Look at those clinical trials. Uh, look at those microglial surface proteins. And, uh, and there's a couple of, there are, there's two anti-amyloid oligomer in particular, anti-amyloid oligomer antibodies that have some pretty promising cl clinical data. So we it could be just around the corner. Okay. Well, very good. What's the best way for people to find out more about your work? Where can they go? 
stevenshukin.com. I have a goofy little website there. I uh, am also listed as a member of the Weiss Carey Lab website. So that's W-Y-S-S-C-O-R-A-Y. And also my name is unusual enough that if you just Google me, all my social media comes up. Okay. Well, very good. Well, Stephen, thank you for coming on the podcast. I appreciate it. Thanks for the invite, Rich. Appreciate you. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.